Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from former Endemol Shine Australia co-chief executive Mark Fennessy about the launch of his new Sydney headquartered production outfit Helium. Slim Film and Television Managing Director Simon Crawford-Collins and Federation Entertainment co-founder Lionel Uzan discuss their David Tennant-led version of Around the World in 80 Days, ahead of its premiere at Cannes Series. And Amazon Prime Video Canada Chief Magda Grace talks with Telefilm Canada Executive Director and Chief Executive Krista Dickinson as part of C21's Content Canada On Demand. Endemol Shine Australia co-chief executives Mark and Carl Fennessy stepped down last year after a decade in the wake of Banerjee's takeover of the business. The brothers previously ran Fremantle Australia after the division was created through the merger of Grundy and their own independent label Crackerjack. Having steered some of the biggest TV franchises in the industry including the Australian versions of MasterChef, Big Brother, Survivor and Project Runway, the pair have now gone their separate ways after a 26-year partnership. Mark Fennessy spoke to Ruth Laws about the launch of his new production venture, Helium, some of the projects on its initial slate and why it's such a great time to be getting back to his indie roots. You've launched the companies less than a year after you left Endemol Shine Australia. I just wondered if this company was always on the cards and that was why you decided to leave. No, the, the reasons why we departed, I think it was, you know, Banerjee had had uh, had bought um, the company in October of 2019. We were off contract in November that year and, you know, the world was going into COVID. Nobody looked like, knew what that was going to look like. We literally stayed in place to, to manage the existing business before we could ever get down and even really talk to the guys at Banerjee. Being the third owner in 10 years of the company, I think um, you know they were taking a particular view on how they wanted to manage it and run it going forward, which we completely understood. We, we'd sort of really felt that it was probably time for a change in lots of respects. You know, so it was a fairly very cordial and amicable kind of parting of the ways. I think it was probably timely. You know, we understood where they were at and what they were looking at, which was a lot of uncertainty that, that, that was facing the world at that particular time so the, the two weren't mutually exclusive I think um ultimately you know when you when you're in lockdown and you can't travel anywhere you can't even travel five kilometers from your home you know you spend a lot of time you know thinking about what you want to do what you'd like to do I mean you know we um, um I think I, up until 12 months or so ago I, I felt like my career was like one long day I mean we just went at such a ferocious pace for such a long time and you don't really get the opportunity even though there's other things that you might want to do um you know you're on a particular course you've got commitments to people on the road that you're on so you tend to push those things aside and then suddenly 15 years goes past you know so when you've actually got the opportunity and you're sort of stuck in lockdown it's probably a very good time to be in lockdown um you know you start to think what if you know what if um and you, you really don't get those opportunities very often and um you know carl and i were incredibly grateful for um the opportunities and the support that we've had and the experiences that we've had the people that we worked for we, you know we worked for wonderfully talented people and learned you know a huge amount ourselves but i think you know we we both also had other different passions things we wanted to do uh in our careers and in our lives and you just don't get that opportunity you know, we probably worked to afford ourselves the opportunity to to choose to do some different things um i think what helium is and where i'm going with it has probably been in the back of my mind for probably three years if not longer so you know it's um it's a different kind of uh, 
um, you know, a label for for a very rapidly changing landscape. So, you know, I don't play golf, you know. So, um, so I I think of things, I develop things, I talk to people, I get excited about ideas. Well, you know, the golf courses have been closed for a long time anyway. So those who who like to play golf can't. But I'm, you know, it, it's sort of in my DNA. So I um, you know, I, I'm really looking forward to doing some sort of doing some different things in a different way, and and you know, that's incredibly healthy. So yeah, it's probably been in the back of my mind for quite some time. So uh, here we are. Um, and you mentioned your brother Carl, of course. Um, I just wondered if he's going to be involved in in helium at all. Um, Carl and I, you know, look, we we've ever as I said before, we've afforded ourselves the opportunity to do some different things. Carl's not involved in helium. Um, he's really enjoying extended break uh, at the moment. He's in no hurry to do anything right now. I think he's looking at a couple of different things. You know, I like to get back on the horse pretty quick, and um, you know where I'm going the direction I'm going in you know he's he's not as he's not as driven by those particular things so it's it's a really healthy thing I mean we've we, we talk every other day you know our relationships are as strong as it's ever been but you know we we both have individual kind of passions and different things that we'd like to do um and this is mine you know so um uh no we're we're, we're going our own ways for a while and doing our own things for a bit um and can you tell me about the type of content that helium is going to produce? Well, helium, you know, is, is a kind of a vibrant, sort of fairly, sort of you know, nimble, muscular disruptor. You know, it's it's a sort of already I've got a fairly, you know, I'm assembling a uh, a different kind of a team. The industry's changed, the audience has changed, the world's changed. Um, so it's probably for me, there's probably never been a better idea to go back to being truly independent. You know, this the world's spinning a lot faster for creators and producers out there, and there's so many new opportunities and the thing the, the world of the, the stream. And, and the types of opportunities that that are there out there now, you know, for helium, the focus is going to be pretty much heavily on on premium scripted and factual. In listing in listing in the initial stages, I've got um, you know, I've already got several projects in development. One major series, The Last King of the Cross, was it was an agreed part of our our exit, and I've probably got probably five or six books under license. You know, as I said, I'm I'm a sort of ferocious developer, and I don't sit still for long, so. You know, I've, I've had time to plan what sort of label I, I'd like it to be. I've been able to make a lot of comparisons having sort of run four of these sort of businesses over an extended period of time. So, you know, it's it's nice to be a little bit leaner. It's nice to be a little bit more fleet of foot. There aren't the pressures to have a high degree of volume in a short period of time. So you can be a little bit more selective. The other thing with Helium is that, you know, partnership and collaboration is going to be a huge part of this particular label. I'm really looking forward to working with different creators, storytellers, third-party rights holders, larger studios, independent producers, you know, even those that previously have been competitors. I'm looking at the quality of the idea and the experience and the the caliber of the talented people involved in that particular project and really looking at, you know, doing some wonderfully special and premium sorts of stuff, you know. It's nice to be able to kind of drop down a gear and to be able to kind of pace out a year or a two-year period whereby you've got X amount of projects in development and X amount of projects in production without having to feel the need that you have to sort of maintain a certain volume. That's been a lot of what we've had to do for a long time. And we've been very successful at that. And and um and we're, you know, we're as I said, we're very grateful for that. They've all been great experiences. Um, but it's all kind of led me really to where I where I am now. I mean, I started out as a with a boutique independent that was Cracker Jack, and um they say life 
life's, you know, not a straight line, it's a circle. So, you know, I think helium sort of brings me back to the sort of vibrancy and the enthusiasm uh, of, of a lot of the ideas and the sorts of company that sort of Cracker Jack was in a, in a very different kind of a way. The landscape's changed enormously since then. Uh, and there's you know, there's a great amount of opportunity out there. I mean, there's never been really a more exciting time. I think the content world's a really, really exciting place to be. You know, it's it's changing dramatically every day. But really, that's kind of the why I wanted to kind of, I suppose, reset, pivot, and and sort of go again. So the framework and the the sort of, I suppose, the aspiration for what helium is 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 sort of been in my mind for quite a while. And are there any particular genres within premium scripted and premium factual that you're focusing on? The King of the Cross or Last King of the Cross, sorry, is a, is a crime drama. Is that an area that you're looking into particularly? I think the spread will be super wide. I certainly think crime and true crime, which is a pretty popular genre and it's a, it's a, it's a fairly, you know... <laughs> It, it's it's there's a lot of there's a lot of it out there. Uh, it's certainly there's a couple of projects. Last King of the Cross has really been the culmination of about three years. It's it's quite a unique story in that it's a you know it's a real family crime sort of drama. You know up there with things like The Sopranos and things like that. So it's a it, it's it's quite a unique story in itself. Being a being a true family and being a true story. Um, there's probably a couple of crime related things, but I've also got some other projects that are that are very much in the you know the female world as well they've, they've got, I've got a, a couple of those coming down the pipe in advanced development at the moment you know music's always been a bit of a passion so there's a there's there's a couple of music related projects from from a scripted perspective that um that I'm sort of working on and you know certainly on the factual side docufilm I've probably got four or five that I'm sort of developing and they're in you know they're coming along really well so there's a fairly broad spread but I, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily you know sort of specializing in one particular genre over another you know it's the sort of the quality of the projects and you know also the writers that you know it, it's all about it's all about the script when it comes to you know this world so looking to attract and to work with the best and most discerning talents is a big priority right um and i know also on your slate um there's sex and thugs and rock and roll i wondered if you could tell me a little bit about that yeah well i recently worked on a, a project with a with a very talented guy um called richard lowenstein we did the mystify film on my Michael Hutchins. Um, I worked with him on that for about three years. And this is a very unique book based upon a, you know, a, a, a since deceased rock star here called Billy Thorpe wrote. He wrote it in the late 90s. And it really is a, it's quite a cracking story. The hero of, of this is the story as opposed to it being a biopic or a pure music story. It's much more than that. So Richard and I are sort of, we are, that's that's the that's basically a joint venture with his company Ghost Pictures. Um, apropos to my point about working in different ways with with different creatives and um that's a project that we've that we've been developing for for quite a while we haven't pitched that one as yet but it but it has received you know state and federal government funding we do have a script it's in really good shape and it's it's quite funny it's quite a funny piece as the music world can be in lots of different ways so that's uh that's that's a really good project i'm also involved with a with a smaller budget film called six festivals which um is being picked up by paramount plus but it will have a it will have a theatrical lease release before that and it it is about three 16 year olds who who love music festivals that's their big thing and and two guys and a girl they're best friends one of the guys uh, is diagnosed with terminal cancer so they decide to do six festivals in six months and it's really that the story evolves from one festival to the next and that one sat in hiatus for a while because even once it was funded all the music festivals were shut down 
So really that's, in a way, that's kind of worked out quite well with the timing of, um, you know, of lockdown here. So there's been no festivals. We, we Shooting was postponed and um, I had my, you know, my restraint period to um, to see out anyway. So now I can, now I can rejoin the gang on that particular project, which is a, it's a, it's a really lovely, it's not, it's not a depressing project. It deals with, obviously it deals with youth cancer and in a, in a unique kind of a way. Um, it's actually quite an uplifting story. So, um, you know, that's a great project that I'm really uh, enjoying being part of as well. So there's more of those sorts of things to come. Some are projects that people bring to me, others are things that I, that I'm interested in developing, you know, and some are, some are based upon licensed books and, and others are not. And I wondered what buyers and territories are you targeting what what things are that you know the the positives of you know with streamers obviously the whole thing is to do with ip retention um does that bother you as an indie or you know do you prefer more traditional broadcasters no no well both really i mean the the way that the, the the way that the streamers work in this particular market is they largely only buy out Australian rights, and you know you then lay off the the, the rest of the world elsewhere. So you know Paramount is now moving to a total buyout. Uh, Stan here are really only still buying Australian rights. So you then can either go to uh, obviously through a distributor, or you can even lay off the rest of the world with another streamer. Um, so it's a little bit different. Um, certainly, I'm taking very much a global view. In regards to in, in regards to how we operate it, it'll all largely come out of here. But I'm I'm a foot soldier in terms of travelling, so you know I'm you know in the UK and the US a lot. Uh, obviously, we love to be doing you know um, projects with streamers and broadcasters and different platforms around the world. But obviously, being an English speaking territory, a lot of it will come through here first. And I wondered if you'd built out your senior team yet, if you'd made any hires. Not yet. I'm only really just starting. Um, you know. A, a Again, I've been selective in terms of the kinds of people I wanted on board, and that's all starting to happen now. You know, um, I actually had I had lots of conversations with different people. I'm only starting out with about four or five, and you know, you've got to hire the necessary people like IT and things, things like that. That's the first person I hired, IT, <laughs> which says a lot about the world that we're in. So uh, not yet. It'll it'll be a different mix in terms of the sorts of people I've worked with before and the sorts of companies that we've run before. But I see that as incredibly healthy and and really exciting at the same time. It there's certainly it's a different mix uh, of guys and girls. It's they're a bit younger, but you know um, I'm pretty young in spirit as well. So you know it's 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 a good mix but there'll be there'll be more announcements as we go along um, and this question is probably very premature um but i wondered if international expansion is on the cards and where you would launch your first international office if it is um oh look you know i think down the road we'll, we'll see how things go over the first 12 months to two years i mean i've always been about you know think global act local so the, the first focus will, will be here but yes i mean i i would love to look at doing things in the larger market it's down the track. It's important to really focus on delivering some quality stuff early on because the sales side of things is one side, but delivering is always the hardest part. And really, you know, I'm going to be more hands-on than I've been for a while. So, you know, that's going to determine 
how the business rolls out. There's there's no short-term plan to build an empire, that's for sure. It really is about being a, a robust and muscular, you know, label to start with and really doing some high quality stuff. And then we'll, we'll see, you know, we'll see what comes. We'll see how we evolve and how we grow. Brilliant. Um, and then just one final question for me, just a broad one. I just wondered what you think the challenges and opportunities are for an indie producer in the year ahead. Look, it's I think it's been, a, you know, a really challenging time for everyone on the planet. But I do think the clouds, you know, the great clouds are parting and, and we're getting to the blue sky beyond. I do think there's a huge amount of cause for optimism. I think there's a there's a lot of opportunity out there. I think, you know, the deals amongst the streamers are a bit of a mixed bag. And with more competition, the deal terms will, will vary and, and hopefully become a little bit better. You know, we're obviously going to see more and more different sort of platforms, more and more new carriers in terms of content. And I think it's a great time to be um, an independent producer. I really do. I mean, I think we've all got to think a little bit differently to what we have before. The world's changed a lot. So it's a case of how you position yourself for those opportunities and and how you work with different partners. So I, I really do think it's, um, you know, it's an exciting time. And I think it's certainly, it's it, it's a period of change. It seems that that's been happening for a while, but but I think it, it's, it's positive change. I really do. And I think you've got to embrace that. Yeah, it's it's a it's an exciting time. I've got bundles of energy, and I've got you know some wonderful things coming that I'm incredibly excited about. And um, you know, you'll start to see some announcements roll out over the coming months of different projects. You know, that I've put a lot of time into into developing because, as I said, I I don't play golf, and I haven't been able to leave the house. So you know, you you gravitate to to what you love and what you know. So it's a it's a really exciting new adventure, and um, I'm I'm delighted to be finally launching. Around the World in 80 Days, the latest adaptation of the Jules Verne classic, co-produced by Slim Film and Television and Federation Entertainment, was one of the first major shows to be hit by the COVID-19 production shutdowns last year. The series, among the first to be greenlit by the cohort of European public service broadcasters known as The Alliance, stars David Tennant in the lead as 19th century globetrotter Phileas Fogg. Made for France Television, ZDF and Rai, with PBS Masterpiece in the US, the BBC in the UK, Seven West Media in Australia and plenty more on board, the big-budget drama is due to premiere on the French Riviera this Sunday as the physical version of the Cannes Series Festival returns ahead of MIPCOM. Executive producers Simon Crawford Collins of Slim Film and Television and Lionel Ouzin from Federation Entertainment spoke to Michael Picard about bringing the series to screen, their partnership with the Alliance and how they navigated filming during the pandemic. So, I mean, just take us back to the beginning, because I know the project was kind of first announced in, in 2019 and there was a big fanfare about it being part of the this European alliance of, of broadcasters that kind of picked up the project to develop it further. I mean, take us back before then, perhaps when you two first started talking and, and what was, the, I guess, the interest for both of you in, in retelling this story? Well, there, there was no real before because everything happened pretty much at the same time, meaning that uh, Simon had done the initial connection with the alliance and one of the big questions, I guess, on their side was that uh, it was the beginning of the alliance. It was meant to be, and it's still uh, to date, their biggest project ever. Quite a, a difficult production endeavor, uh, shooting in many places and, you know, literally traveling around the world. So, so, so one of the big questions that was raised by the alliance and by Simon was, who, which company 
could be the right fit, the right partner to bring, you know, additional uh, resources, expertise and vision uh, to hopefully get the project to, 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 to go off the ground. And, and that's when we met with Simon. And, uh, and I would say in terms of the timing for us as a company, it was the perfect timing because we, we have been, I think, pretty successful on the non-English language speaking uh, series. Uh, and we really wanted to take a new a new step or, or you know uh, uh, tackle you know uh, bigger projects. And one of the only way to go is to uh, is to tackle English speaking projects. You get you know bigger budgets, bigger financing, bigger casting, etc. Uh, so th the timing was right for us. We felt we were kind of ready for it. And the project, uh, you know, although we are an international company, we're also very French. And uh, the subject matter, because of the original uh, novel, is in a way very French, at least culturally. So it had you know lots of combination and in terms of we didn't know each other uh, with, with Simon but we knew his reputation and also uh, we knew the reputation of the talent he had put together already on the project uh, so in terms of the quality level uh, there was no no real doubt so that's uh, that's the initial connection Simon? yeah no completely agree and you know from my perspective you know at the point that France television you know who I brought it to initially as a you know anticipating that they would be joining the party of a primary UK or a US commission. Initially, it was what I'd expected. And I thought, well, we need to bolster that. And then once France Television said they loved the, the script and they didn't want to be, but they didn't want to be a junior partner, they wanted to be a, the, the sort of senior commissioner on it. Um, then it suddenly became quite a different thing for me because I'm like, well, I've never made a show for a, uh, you know, for a French broadcaster. So it's, and I really believe you need to know, you know, it's really good and helpful to know what your, what your main customer really expects and wants. So immediately I was starting to think, you know, a French co-producer would be a really good idea. Also, you know, you can you can plan big, but I was a small company and the actual reality of, of making big shows is, is very scary. And truthfully, you know, it was, you know, if, if Slim had been on its own doing this, I, I think it would have been a real challenge. And I certainly think it would have been a massive challenge when COVID hit because having Federation by myself They've got the resources in terms of personnel, but also the finance you know, that, that they can they can sort of ride through those bumpy moments in a, in a way. And I've, they also, you know, I have to hand it to Lionel and the team at Federation. They just kept incredibly calm uh, when, you know, there were some dark moments where we were literally like, we don't know what the hell's going to happen here. And we've committed an enormous amount of money and having partners who just calmly look at the problem and, you know, try and collectively make the best decisions. That was uh, that was fantastic for me. So to my mind, you know, I have to, hand, you know, France Television suggested uh, Lionel and Federation to me and uh, it was a fantastic introduction. And, and I think it's also uh, a, a good, you know, I, I know many people criticize co-production because, you know, it's difficult or many, many reasons. It's true that it's difficult, but what I think can work, and we hope this is what worked here, is the combination of expertise. You know, it doesn't prevent, you know, hurdles and problems, but a true combination of expertise. And uh, and Slim and Federation are two very different companies. Uh, Simon and I are, you know, different uh, producers, and, 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 and our team is also different from Slim, but I think there was a true combination of expertise. Uh, you know, on the, on, on the, on, on the other hand, uh, handling uh, a writing room of UK writers is something that we had never done. So 
we knew that this expertise was in the hands of, uh, of Simon. And so at the same time, if it had been us alone, you know, would we have handled some of those aspects uh, as well? I don't think so. At some point, uh, it's a question of expertise and it's a question of experience, especially on those big, big, big shows. So, um, and as well, as you said, Simon, on the financing or the, the banking aspect, uh, the distribution aspect of it, I think there was some, some good expertise on our side. So I, I really think that this combination of expertise is really also what makes, um, you know, partners not wondering, well, what, what the hell is the other one doing? <laughs> No, I, I like to think we've never questioned whether exactly. we've earned earned our, our, our money on this one. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I think it's one probably one of the keys or, or, or sometimes one of the big hurdles of co-productions. You expect something of an expertise from your partner or sometimes you forget to question it. You know, what is he really bringing to the table and vice versa? Uh, and I think that's what can make a co-production difficult or, or disappointing, even if not difficult. I think here, uh, and given all also the specific circumstances, we had to bring our full expertise on both sides to, yeah, really. So in a way, it's, uh, it was a, 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 a great crash test, which we, which we I think, survived in a, in a great shape and in a great way. I mean, take us just inside the, inside the alliance, because, yeah, as, as Simon said, you kind of worked with France Television first. And, and as I understand the story, they took it to kind of Rye and, and ZDF, their kind of main partners in the alliance. And, and since then, you've kind of pre-sold to, to other public broadcasters including obviously the BBC um, I mean wh what would you just say to, to other producers about working with the Alliance based on the way that you have done on this show leave it to us <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I think there's one great simple idea with the Alliance, uh, which they manage to keep constantly all along the way. Uh, and I think this is what they are doing on their other projects. And it's a simple one, but a tough one to manage is they've told us from day one, you will only ever hear one voice. And we know that one of the hurdles in co-productions is multiple broadcasters for talents and for producers. It can be just a nightmare because you can't, it's like you cannot satisfy, you know, different voices. And they have said this is one of our internal rules. We said, look, if you can really manage that, this is this is going to work. And they manage it on uh, literary development and then on the editing process. We only ever had one set of feedback. It changes uh, everything because it's as if you only have one broadcast. And and I think that's that's really that's really the, the the one the one key thing that they have set in their own rules, which makes it work. You know, although it's different channels, they have different interests, potentially different uh, audiences, etc. But where that's how it can work. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting example of how, of how in the new market, uh, you know, and it's also, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the platform, because the Alliance is also a response from them to the platform. The platform is one entity. So the Alliance has to be one entity in order to make those big shows. And uh, yeah. so that's my, I don't know, Simon, how you feel on that. I mean, that's the key point. Yeah, I think that's absolutely the key point. And, and you know, I think we, we can be honest in saying that we we weren't entirely convinced. We heard that that message, but we weren't entirely convinced it would you know it would work out like that. Uh, but it has done all the way through, and even now when we're discussing you know transmission dates and everything like that, it's it's sort of it's managed centrally. And it's not to say that we don't talk to the other broadcasters. We do. And we have one. We have really strong relationships with the team at ZDF and, and Rai. And obviously, particularly for Federation, they do anyway. But I did so so it's in a way the best of both worlds. You're getting the connection with those broadcasters. Broadcasters and you're 
not getting pulled in different directions. Mm-hmm. And that is so, so essential because then that also then enables us to, you know, to fight our corner. If you've got one person giving you a note which you don't necessarily agree with, you're able to have that simple discussion and make and maintain the creative vision. And not to say we don't listen to notes and change where where it's appropriate. We absolutely do. But if you've got three different sets of notes coming in, it's very easy to get creatively pulled in to the point where you actually lose sight of really what you you know the, the core identity of a piece. And that's when you end up with a, a wishy-washy project which hasn't got artistic integrity. And and we we have absolutely never had to divert from making the right call to make the best show because of our collaboration with Alliance. They've supported it entirely. Yeah, and 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 it didn't prevent them to give, uh, and I would say especially in editing extensive notes and very very precise notes. Mm. But but again, it was one set of notes. So yeah, it was it's it, it's it's an easy, it's a dialogue. It's an easier dialogue if you have four voices. Yeah, I mean, do, do you think the process on on that side of things anyway? That process was easier because of the show you were making. Everyone knows around the world in eighty days. It's not an original piece. It's not a writer from England, for example, trying to pitch this show to all these different countries. Do you think because everyone could buy into that central property that maybe they were less hands-on than they might have otherwise wanted to be? Perhaps I would. I wouldn't say so. I think. I think probably in terms of the initial excitement about do we want to do it, the fact that it was a well-known title um, was a benefit. But then I think once you're past that point, then whether people have opinions on it creatively and what the, the taste choices are, I think it's as uh, it's it's a bigger deal and in some ways more precious. You know, the you know there is particularly in France uh, there is a huge huge sort of knowledge of, of the actual novel and love for it in a way that we don't have so much in in the UK. So it was the fact that Ashley had made lots of changes but kept it true to the spirit of the original book was really important. And so um, I think in some ways it's you know swings and roundabouts. But ultimately they will they will be as involved with making sure they get a show that they're really proud of um, to go on their screens. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and we, we, there were many many questions discussions for example on the tone of the show because the tone is very specific. You don't see so many shows like that. Uh, you know uh, the promise of a smart family adventure. Uh, how do you keep it smart and keep it uh, family friendly and fun at the same time? Those were you know uh, actual uh, heavy creative discussions. They wanted to make sure that the tone was right and was going to be going from beginning to end. And so the fact that it was just then didn't make it uh, <laughs> easier. <laughs> yeah, and maybe even less because it's so iconic. They wanted to, yeah, they wanted to, to be true to, to the spirit, I think. And, and working with the alliance then of, of these public broadcasters, Lionel, I mean, how does that affect then your, your distribution strategy once you've got the tape and you can start talking to other partners? I mean, I guess the idea is that you're not going to just go out and, and sell global rights to a streamer because that would defeat the object of the alliance. So what is that strategy then for you and, and where can you see the show playing in you know different markets around the world? Well, fr- from what we know already, uh, as many people, many people have followed the, the traction that was created when we were able to announce that the project was going and was going also uh, with this, you know, uh, a great talent attached and, uh, and of course, including David Tennant. Uh, that traction which was created allowed us to get, I would say, broadcasters which are in the same uh, vein, you know, in the same spirit. So, so of course, we have, you know, many public stations uh, which, which came along and not just, uh, of course, BBC and PBS, uh, but, but also additional uh, public, public stations. So uh, I think 
I think the you know it was a, it was like a, a, a process, a step by step process. The fact that we got the traction and the confirmation that the show was going no matter what and didn't need more to get going was very attractive for for many many people. The fact that it was voted for by France Television, ZDF, and I at the same time, and we, and they know how difficult it is potentially for these three broadcasters to find projects with the push collectively. It helped uh, uh, push the discussions with uh, with the station. And, and I would say uh, now even more, now is the last step for distribution. We have sold or pre-sold pretty much the entire world, but not everything. So we have a few territories left, which are important territories. Uh, and we know there is an excitement created by this addition, you know, of, uh, you know, when you add up all the brands which are now voting for the project, for the project, uh, I think it's important. And then on the streamer side, uh, we've always viewed uh, the possibility to have a deal with a streamer or streamers, either for a, a set of territories, but never for the entire world, because these three major territories of uh, uh, France, uh, uh, Germany, Italy, and then UK, and then US were already taken. So mostly for a set of territories and or, and I think it's going to be more likely the, the, the second aspect, uh, potentially for the, the future windows which for us as independent producers uh, owning part of the rights of the show is, is of course quite interesting. In a way it's more classic <laughs> financing but I would say, you know, for, for us in terms of the, the value of the IP that was uh, created, it's, it's quite interesting and for all the partners which have invested in the show, it's quite interesting. So in a way, it's more of a traditional uh, approach to distribution in a way. And, and I would say for, for us on the distribution side, as a distribution company, what's interesting for us is we're not uh, for or against the platforms are for or against any broadcasters. What's interesting is the mix that some of your titles, it's great to sell everything to a platform. Uh, on some, it's a mix. On some, you know, no platform comes on board. And what's interesting is the ability that the market creates now that you have so many uh, possible combinations. Uh, that's that's part of the, 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 the new aspects of distribution. And I guess then, Simon, you kind of alluded to it earlier about, you know, the challenge of, of making the show, just physically making it. I guess COVID aside, just for, just for the moment, what what kind of scale and, and epicness were you having to kind of confront as you kind of started planning how the show would be made in, in South Africa and, and then later in, in Romania as well? Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, it, it's the same for every show, but it, but it, but it's, you know, uh, uh, extenuated in, the, in this one is that, you know, you're always, your eyes are bigger than your stomach or you're, you know, you're, you're, you have all these wonderful dreams of where you're going to go. And at one point I was looking at traveling to six different countries and doing the, and, you know, the number of days we'd have to film per episode and like that. And gradually as the complexity of it, you know, becomes clear, you, you go, oh, we've got to simplify things. And literally the fact that not only was it different countries, but it was a fact, it's very rare to have series where you never go back to the same place at the same time. So you, you've got no standing, you know, useful standing set that, that takes, you know, provides you 20% of stuff. This is a period road trip, a new place every time. But also because it's a road trip, you have to use vehicles, whether it's a boat or a train or a camel or, you know, you've got to be on the move. So there was nothing about this that uh, shouted, it's going to be cheap, um, uh, which, you know, Lionel and I had quite, you know, complicated discussions about, um, uh, you know, how we should do it. But what the other the, the other element that, you know, really excited me about working with Federation was that although we 
you know, although we, we had, you know, proper grown up discussions about how to manage the cost, Lionel, like me, you know, shared the vision of whatever we do, it's got to be really good. You know, we cannot, you know, this could never feel cheap. It can't feel like we would have liked to have done something else, but we couldn't afford that. So it was a question of making the right choices at the script stage as well to go, let's always have those things that we can do really, really well. And even when then COVID hit and we had to make some changes to, you know, there were some sets that we'd built that we couldn't afford to keep standing there for a year and stuff like that. Things we had to get rid of. But it was always a question of what are the compromises we can we can come up with and what are the changes we can make that are inspired by the characters, inspired by the storytelling, so that it never feels like we've shortchanged. And that's been really, you know, I think that's one of the things that for me I'm certainly really proud of. And I think as a partnership, we worked really well. Even, you know, it's very easy to all pat each other on the back at the end of a job when it's all looking nice and shiny. But it was the fact that you know the collaboration worked really well during those those sort of complicated times when making really sort of what felt like um made decisions which would either keep this on track or knock it totally off the rails at the time um so yeah it's um it's it's had its its real challenges but it was also a question of getting the right people on board uh we had a, a fantastic uh producer peter mcalise who kept everything very calm kept everything very happy on the set with an incredible production designer sebastian Kravinkel, who first time he'd done a tv series actually and he just uh, he just seemed to you know achieve the most amazing um sets on um you know relatively modest budget but it was always it was always you know, as soon as the actors arrived on set every time it was like their jaws sort of hit the floor it was like wow we can't believe what you've achieved and it actually got to the point where you know if you'd been on a set for two or three days you started to get bored because it was a bit like shouldn't we be moving on now shouldn't we be going somewhere new so it's extraordinary i mean there was a there's an amazing new york street that sebastian created uh, i mean it he put so much work into it. Every window shop for, uh, you know, of 100 shops was dressed minutely and we shot on it for about three hours. And that is sort of kind of heartbreaking. <laughs> but it was that it was that level of detail. And it was like, yes, it, we're only going to see it for, you know, a couple of minutes, but it's got to look great. And can you talk about what kind of budget you had to play with and, and maybe how you piece that together? I'm, I'm always quite relaxed, partly because I always forget. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, yeah, was never enough, was it? It was. Um, <laughs> it's never enough. You know, you 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 sort of raised the finance. I mean, it's sort of fine with me. Well, in in, in terms of uh, yeah, as you know, producers hate to throw numbers, uh, but you know, we, we were in in the in the region uh, of thirty five million north or south. You know, <laughs> of that number, this is where, where we ended up. Um, and in terms of the the, the way it's it, it's been put together, I would say the the, and I'm sure I'm going to forget a few pieces but the main pieces so of course the alliance then an, an additional set of, uh, of pre-sales uh, a great optimization of uh, uh, tax incentives you know it's a nice cathedral <laughs> of, of, of uh, optimizing while at the same time uh, keeping you know keeping in mind that you cannot you know you cannot drive the production on that but we're trying to optimize as best uh, at best on the, in the different locations and then we had great support and great trust from the IDC in South Africa which not only helped uh, for the, the, the tax credit aspect of it, but also uh, is an equity investor in the project and they invested a substantial amount of money. Uh, and that, that's basically the, the different you know, big pieces on, uh, 
and of course, you know, investment from us on the on the distribution on the distribution side. You know, what were some of the challenges then that, that you had getting the show made? I mean, you've obviously spoken about some of them, but are there any things that just stand out in your mind that you might do differently next time, or or maybe lessons that you've learned for the next project that you might do on on this kind of scale? What stands out for you? Uh, maybe one of the things just just to finish on the financing, I think we were a bit tight in our assessment of how of how much time we would need to uh, close all of these pieces together you know we we, we had bet on uh, on some months uh, well we, we had to take some additional risk and to start investing you know in the project a substantial amount of money before everything was literally closed and you know all the money coming in from all the partners I think we we, we, we missed uh, a bit of time it was a bit tight on that because uh, there were so many pieces to put together between the incentives the broadcasters the pre-sales the co-production the equity investors our own equity etc as I'm saying it's a cathedral of financing so it takes time to build a cathedral a bit more time <laughs> than but we it's sort of, I mean we ended up going slightly earlier than we thought because of you know that's the the, the joy and the the pain of working with a, a, a an actor who's so in demand as David Tennant that he had a very specific window that we had to hit uh, because he'd had, he had other commitments which of course became rather irrelevant in the end because all those other commitments disappeared because uh, of COVID but at the time you know it was slightly yeah it was that, that and that was where you know from you know it was fantastic to have federation and its relationships uh with the with the likes of Kofi Loisir and stuff like that because I don't think without all the various deals closed a company of my size would have been able to just get it going you needed a scale to do that yeah. and, and by the way can can I add something on what you were saying Simon what we've not mentioned is uh, you know talking about the expertise I think the expertise of Kofi Loisir of those type of closing of financial closing was super super helpful they knew it was going to take time. They knew it was going to be to be tricky and difficult. And of course, you know, we, they they know Federation really well, so they trusted uh, you know our solidity, etc. Uh, and that we, we we were going to deliver everything we we had said. But they were super helpful in the process. They they know about it, especially because they have a big experience in terms of uh, independent feature films, uh, which which is pretty pretty close to what what we've done. And, you know, all of those different pieces. You know, having you know to to, to be put together. So that, their knowledge of that, you know, made them uh, you know if not relaxed, uh, at least knowledgeable on on that process. You need a, um, a banking partner to have that kind of expertise and to know the timings and and, and just. I mean, just a final word. I mean, considering COVID has happened and, and everything we've been through in the last 18 months, I mean, how do you just feel now having gone through that and, and filmed and, and, and finished the show? I mean, were there times where you thought you wouldn't be able to or, or what was it like just being right in the eye of the storm? Because, I mean, Simon, we spoke last year. It must have been end of March, beginning of April, when you were sort of telling me that on, the, on a Friday night you'd made the decision and, and by Sunday you had to get everyone home from South Africa. So that must have been a very challenging time. What was it like just then coming back and, and getting the show made? Well, I mean, being back filming again, and actually having our feet on the ground doing that, it was jo joyful. I mean, really, everyone was so excited. Uh, there was such affection towards the, the show. People loved the scripts. They loved the characters. They cast the crew. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. So that was great. It was obviously joy filled with trepidation because everyone was having this stuck up their noses every three days and um, uh, 
we were all terrified about being shut down. But uh, you know, we you know, having been lucky with COVID, we were then you know whether it was our processes or luck, who knows? But we were able to complete all the filming without stopping again. So that was a joy. But uh, I went to a, a big screening room to do a test screening of one and two as it's going to be broadcast in Cannes uh, this coming Sunday. And I will be honest, I had a tear in my eye at the end of the screening because I was sort of like, I can't actually believe that we have made it to this stage. <laughs> um, uh, not that I ever believed we wouldn't. I was always certain we would. But when I now look back on it, I go, why on earth was I certain? There were so many reasons why this should not have happened. But, you know, uh, it, maybe, and who knows, maybe it was, even though it was a very expensive way to for things to happen by having shot three weeks and then having to stop, you know, maybe it was helpful. The the amount, the investment, both financially, but also emotionally from all the people in the show was such that there was an utter determination that we were not going to let this show die. And I think that was probably quite useful when you're trying to do a global um, period road trip during the middle of a pandemic. Content Canada On Demand, the virtual version of C21's latest international TV conference, got underway online last month featuring a range of keynote speakers, panel discussions, case studies and exclusive digital premieres. Magda Grace, head of Amazon Prime Video Canada, spoke to Telefilm Canada Executive Director and Chief Executive Krista Dickinson about the US streamer's expansion into the territory and what it means for the Canadian production community. The pair also discussed their plans for growth and the areas where Telefilm and Amazon share a vision, including the importance of diversity in authentic storytelling. Hello and welcome to Content Canada's Digital Summit. I'm Krista Dickinson and I'm very pleased to be here today as part of a leader-to-leader conversation with Amazon Prime's Magda Grace. Magda is the head of Amazon Prime Video Canada and is joining me for what is sure to be an interesting and exciting conversation where you will learn more about Amazon Prime and its plans, as well as areas where both Telefilm and Amazon are aligned as media leaders in Canada. So welcome, Magna. It's great to be here with you today. Great to be with you as well, Krista. I thought we would start with a bit about yourself. So you've studied as well as worked both in the U.S. and Canada, which now makes you an asset both for Amazon and for Canada, as you clearly have a very good understanding for the cultures, the work environments, there are similarities and there are differences. So how long have there been active offices for Prime Video in Canada and how has the team been growing recently? Yeah, so I've been on the ground in Toronto since 2017 supporting Prime Video. Uh, I was the first employee in Canada supporting Prime Video. I would say we've probably been only more very active in Canada in the last two years. Um, We actually have 13 people now based in Toronto who are supporting the business, which is a lot more than one uh, a few years ago Um, from a kind of uh, thinking through the team. Our first priorities when bringing people here was focused on marketing. So we we grew a marketing team in addition to building a social media presence and um, putting people in PR, which was a priority for us. Um, And then we also had program managers supporting our business 
service and working with um, local providers. More recently, we added two people focused in content. So we just hired a new head of content for our business based in Toronto. And we also have a head of development who we hired uh, head of scripted development. So that's really exciting for us to be investing in content this year. Totally. You must be so excited to see this growth. And do you see a continued expansion with these new team members and and hires going forward? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a a big part of the the reason that we're putting people on the ground here is to be focused on our Canadian customer and building out our strategy for, for those audiences. This year, we announced... A few, I believe it's five now, five Canadian local original series that are going to start coming out starting in October. So that's a big priority for us. And certainly, you know, you can't launch those without teams to be thinking about marketing positioning and and working with creators and social shoots and things like this. So that's, that's a big focus for us as we scale that out um, into next year. And another big piece for us is starting to think through our Quebec audience um, you know, we've done some work um, supporting Quebec audiences and, and, and French language, and, and there's much more work to be done. And so that'll be a priority for us as we think through uh, hiring into next year. I totally can relate to that. So we've been watching you, you know, from afar at Telephone Canada, and we do have, you know, quite a few uh, employees that work both in French and English or, or both. Um, so our headquarters is in Montreal. We have a large, you know, group of employees that are based there. And I think, you know, Telephone Canada has a super rich history. It's it's one of those iconic Canadian institutions that now is over 50 years old. Um, so we're comprised of 200 employees. So we're bigger than you, but we're much older than you. So I'm sure you're going to catch up. I hope for your sake. Yes. Um, <laughs> So for well, us, lots to learn from uh, lots to learn from you about kind of approach to, to to film and Canadian content, certainly as we start our journey in this area. Yeah, and you know, and I think from each other. So it's it's really interesting to see you know disruption come come onto the scene. And for us, even though we have a long history. For us now, it's no longer about expansion. Obviously, for me, it's about, you know, how do I modernize a crown agency uh, to be relevant in what is such a rapid-paced environment of the 2020s? Um, So tell us, Magda, at Prime Video Canada, how much independence is there from the the U.S.-based headquarters? Like, how closely do you work with Amazon Studios? You can situate us a bit in your own geography. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, at its core, Prime Video is a a global service. And when we think about our big bets, um, often those are um, at the global level, whether it's, you know, Lord of the Rings um, or, you know... um, Borat or anything that we're working on in the content space, but a lot of decisions uh, are made locally, particularly around uh, marketing strategy and content strategy for our local customers. Um, And then also our social voice and our community involvement is something that we kind of manage locally and and take very seriously here. You know, um, as as I mentioned before, a Canadian, local Canadian original strategy is a big piece of our more recent focus. And um, and so, you know, with All or Nothing Toronto Maple Leafs, that's coming out in October. And we have a a bunch of series that are in production now, you know, North Bay um, and in Montreal and outside of Montreal and parts of rural Quebec. So that's a big focus for us. But 
I'd say that when I think about, you know, Canadian content, it goes beyond production for Prime Video. I mean, we're also looking at licensing and bringing different types of content to our customers that resonate with them as Canadians. A couple examples of that, you know, at the start of COVID, we really wanted to offer um, news content to our customers um, because we saw a need to for customers to learn more about what was going on and, you know, kind of exposing them to, to more news content. So we worked with Chorus at the time to offer global news as a part of Prime Video, both the national feed and, and regional feeds. So that's an example of kind of going outside of production for mm-hmm. to bring Canadian content to customers. And then more recently, we, we made available CBC's coverage of the Summer Olympics. Yeah. Um, which was great because, you know, um, we could bring some of the best events to our customers featuring Canadian athletes. And so, you know, a great way to kind of be thinking about like, how do you create a rounded Canadian content strategy that's not just based in producing content, but working with local content partners Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. I think that that patriotism is so important and that pride in our, in our Canadian content and those partnerships. So we're constantly, you know, our, our mission, our mandate is, you know, to be partner of choice. So we're always looking for those affinities. And earlier this year, I done a piece on, you know, having to watch local, like we, you know, we're saying shop local, eat local, you know, watching local is so important um, for us. Um, it's interesting, you know, um, as, a, as a crown agency, you know, a lot of people think our headquarters is Ottawa, which it, it's not, you know, we have a very well defined arm's length relationship with government. So I think that, you know, with the exception of the Canada Media Fund, for whom we, we administer their, their programs, as a funding agency, we, we don't have clients that pay us for, you know, our service rendered per se. So we work in partnership with with the industry. And, you know, it's totally, for me, such an important nuance to us in, in, in the paradigm shift that is evident in what I hope is evident, at least, in the democratization that is underway of our, our programs, you know, how we're changing, how we're doing de- the decision making, the selection process, et cetera. So it's fascinating to hear the type of partnerships that you've already, you know, just done in the last few months alone. Yeah. And there's definitely more room for that as well, I think. So. Oh my God, there, there, there always are. And I think that also one partnership often leads to another because it's not a bilat often, it's a trilat. So it's it can be super exciting. Um, so let's delve in a little bit more. As head of Prime Video Canada, you are responsible for the company's development and expansion efforts into Canada. So I assume this is, you know, combination of the content acquisition, original content creation in Canada by Canadian talent. Like, how do you define that exactly? You know, I, I know it's a broad question, but everybody's dying to hear about it. Yeah. So um, my main role is to manage the overall Prime Video business. That sounds big, I guess. Um, but it includes managing the overall content offering that includes all the prime, the content that's included with Prime Video, mm-hmm. in addition to our transactional businesses, which are our channels business and store or our TVOD business. When I think about like how do we manage the business and what are the levers that we need to pull to do that, there are three. Content, marketing, mm-hmm. and product. Right. Um, from a content perspective, 
my team works really closely with uh, content acquisition and our development executives to source content that will resonate with our customers. Um, We stay super close to audience insights to help inform, you know, what's working um, and how to kind of continue to iterate and then bringing new content that customers may have not seen before uh, onto our service. Um, So a big piece of, of what we do and kind of mentioned that before is just continuing to ensure that we're developing green lighting and producing really strong Canadian content. From a marketing perspective, it's something that we're also very focused on in in managing a business, obviously. Um, And so we run fairly frequent marketing campaigns, just kind of exposing content to customers. And we're super excited to start kicking off some campaigns for All or Nothing Toronto Maple Leafs. We already launched one trailer and we have another juicy one coming up. So so that's exciting for us. Something to watch. (laughs) Yeah. And, 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 you know, thinking through like, how do we engage our, our local audiences and our local customers? So we've done a few events and activations. We put a big, you know, blow up Borat balloon in like Ontario that, that made the news a little bit. So that, that was fun. And like, you know, continuing to engage our customers and thinking about prime video and content is not just something you sit down and watch passively, but you can engage with, you know, more actively. And then obviously product and, and product is a core piece of our customer experience. We, we don't manage that within Canada. It's kind of centralized through tech and, and product teams, you know, in Seattle and the UK. But we, we do bring to the table kind of initiatives that are really important for our local customers. So kind of what I was mentioning before around French content and what's that kind of dual uh, language experience and working closely with those teams to define, you know, and optimize the CX for those audiences is one example of how we would engage with product locally. It's interesting because, you know, what you're doing so new and exciting and telefilm, you know, we, we, we've been here for 50 years, as I said, but a lot of the words that you were saying about, you know, the content is what matters, you know, promoting and marketing only resonates with, with our mis- mission and our mission, you know, um, you know, it's been, it's been our, our North star from the, since in, in the inception of telefilm. And, you know, what's fascinating is that it remains true today. And that is to foster, promote the development of Canadian audiovisual industry and by playing, you know, a leadership role. So we do that in four main components. Obviously, we, you know, we've, we provide financial support to Canadian feature films, you know, that's kind of like the first big one. And then very similar to what you're talking about, that importance of promoting, exporting Canadian creativity, and that is both the content for us and the talent. So we're, we're, we're looking at the, the talent aspect, you know, quite closely in that for us, it's festivals, it's markets, it's events. So it's not quite as exciting as the activation in the lake, <laughs> uh, but we do do cool things. We've done great things with the booths in past years. Um, and, you know, the the other two pieces that we, we do is we also validate projects if they can be officially recognized as conventional audiovisual co-productions under the Canadian treaties with what is now 57 countries. So it's it's quite, you know, numerous. And then we manage also the, the funding um, allocations for the, the Canada Media Fund. Now, the, the, the content as far as, you know, promotion, 
promotion marketing, you know, export or, or some of Telefilm's core activities. And in the past year, what we've done is, you know, because of the pandemic, we felt it was absolutely necessary for us to, you know, amp up our efforts on, on that front. Um, and we've done it in a very intentional way and diversified our, our reach and approach. So one of the things that we did is we created a, a search tool called See It All. And it's meant to help Canadians find Canadian content on streaming platforms like yourselves, as well as where they can find them in theaters. For us, it's really about making sure that, you know, both that balance is there. And we've been working as well, as well with, you know, several cinemas and exhibitors, as well as streaming services on creating visibility for, for these films. And a large number of responders said that they, they'd be keen to support Canadian content. They just need to know where to find it, right? So it's really interesting hearing about your, your activation. What I want to know is the content type. So, you know, um, we support all jars of features as well as documentaries, but what type of content are you looking for at Prime Video Canada? Um, I mean, when it comes to local original content, um, you know, I think uh, we're looking for basically any stories that are authentically Canadian and haven't been told before. Um, right. And, you know, what is authentically Canadian? I mean, it's not just, you know, filmed in Canada and there's, you know, a Canadian actor and that's it. But like, what is the kind of this, the story and the um and, and and the purpose and the kind of identity that's that is within within that story and so that's something that's been um kind of the core to defining what those projects are um and not necessarily kind of like checking the boxes um mm -hmm. on on specific talent though you know local talent is super important for us and development of local and diverse talent uh, is a, a very big piece of what we're looking for when it comes to um, developing uh, local originals here. Um, from like a kind of pure content um, type, um, I mean, I'd say more recently, we've been looking a lot at uh, 30 minute comedies. Mm -hmm. um, Canada is great at comedies. Um, uh, you know, uh, we've developed so many great comedians out of Canada and um, uh, we eat Canada as itself. I'm now talking about myself as a, as a Canadian, not necessarily um, as an Amazonian, but we, you know, Amazon and Prime Video, we hope to develop some great Canadian comedies um and so that's an area we're looking at um adult animation is is particularly interesting to us as well um and unscripted uh mm -hmm. unscripted is an area where, where we're looking um but i think that there's a lot of opportunities across different content types um and you know our needs will evolve as we learn more and release more content you know it's not a stagnant uh our, our strategy is not stagnant it evolves um and we continue to iterate right and so you know as a champion for feature film i have to ask you what about feature film well, I don't, right now we're not, we aren't actually producing any feature films as Canadian originals, but, you know, I, I definitely think that there is room for that in the future. Um, we, you know, this year with COVID, there was a lot of kind of production delays, which um, set back some of our, of uh, the series that we were producing. And so as part of our global strategy, we launched um, films like Borat and Coming to America and, without remorse and all this. And that was, um, you know, worked with, resonated well with customers. So 
I do think that there is opportunity for feature film um, on Prime Video and within Canada. And um, I think it, it just is a matter of time. Super, you're putting a smile on my face, so that's great. Um, but going back then to the talent itself, you know, from away from content type to talent, um, now, you know, with your personal background in talent management, I know you have a keen eye for both talent discovery and development. Um, do you have your eyes specifically at Prime Video Canada on established talent, um, you know, on emerging talent, or are you really looking at, for instance, you know, people that are behind the screen, directors or screenwriters that you're following or on-screen talent? Like, you know, how are you really defining what you're, you're, you're looking to discover and develop? Yeah, so I, I think we're looking for uh, any talent that can make great content that can resonate with local Canadian audiences. Um, it could be emerging, could be established, um, and diversity and representations, uh, a big piece of what we're looking for as a part of that as well. So happy to hear that that's totally what we're looking for as well is those authentic stories. And at Telefilm, you know, when projects come in to us um, for assessment for funding, we really look at assessing the track record of key behind the camera talent. So we focus primarily on the producer, the director, the screenwriter. And overall, we're always looking at that market interest. So, and CanCon, you know, of course, and both of those, you know, you know, the market interest in the CanCon piece, of course, includes on-screen talent. Um, we were, were, were keen um, on developing emerging talent. We see that as a real opportunity to distinguish further Canadian cinema by building up our pipeline and also building up the diversity within our pipeline. Um, we have a specific program entitled um, Talent to Watch. So, you know, as the, the name kind of says, indicates it's for emerging talent. And it is coming up to its 10th anniversary. It's done remarkably well. Um, Talent to Watch has successfully launched um, or been the launch pad, I should say, for something like 150 emerging talent you know, giving newcomer directors, writers, producers that, that opportunity to make their first feature film or web series. And Talent to Watch for us has, you know, has supported films who've won over the same amount of awards, 150 awards that, you know, most recently some Canadian Screen Awards, including Jasmine Mosafari for, for Best Director, as well um, um, with Firecrackers, as well as Heather Young for Best Feature Film, you know, um, her film Murmur. Um, and, you know, it's also been really uh, an incredible launch pad specifically for, for diverse filmmakers. It's, it's so important to us, and we've really seen them go a long way, which is which is really exciting. Amazing. Congrats on your efforts. Thank you. Uh, so maybe we should pop into the, the expand a little bit on the topic of diversity. Um, I see that this is, you know, important in both of our visions, um, you know, authentic storytelling, reaching audiences, very aligned in both our organizations. And uh, I know that Amazon, you know, Prime Video Canada has made a donation recently of $1.25 billion to BIPOC creators in Canada. Um, and there's a partnership there. Um, how are you engaging with the content creators? Is this a one-time partnership? Do you have similar ones that you're contemplating? I think 
you know, the participants here really want to hear about this. For sure. Um, and, th- and thanks for bringing that up. Um, yeah, we were lucky to work earlier this year with uh, the Indigenous Screen Office yeah. um, and made a $1.25 million donation to a couple of funds that they have in supporting uh, BIPOC and Indigenous creators. Um, the ISO Solidarity Fund and also the Indigenous uh, Development Grant Program. Um, so that was something that we worked with them closely on. Um, and as a part of that process, kind of we identified an opportunity to bring um, talent closer to our development teams and kind of give them a little bit more experience and exposure and, and make it a more kind of interactive and an engaged experience rather than, um, you know, simply a a donation. So we um, created a pitch program where we provided $10,000 development grants to 10 applicants. Mm -hmm. um, And um, those 10 applicants were selected by a jury from the Black Screen Office and the Indigenous Screen Office. Mm -hmm. And uh, in addition to the $10,000, they were also uh, given the opportunity to pitch um, to our uh, development team and kind of get feedback out of that process and get experience doing that. So I think it was really exciting to be able to support local talent, give them opportunities and um, pr- provide funding at a time when I think, um, you know, particularly during COVID, there are a lot of, you know, competing realities and, and challenges mm-hmm. that were kind of potentially pulling people out of the industry. Um, so that was something that was um, really important for us. Um, you know, would we do it again? Like we would love to do more of these opportunities again. Um, you know, we're actively looking, uh, for more ways that we can engage with local voices and emerging voices. Um, and it was fantastic working with the ISO. Um, you know, we've, um, you know, kind of spoken with them on a couple of other projects that we're working on. So, you know, keeping engaged with the community and local organizations like that is, is really important to us in terms of making sure that we're connected to, uh, within the community. Yeah, we've also been collaborating closely both with Indigenous Screen Office, Black Screen Office, along with a number of key partners across the industry. Last year, like you, we thought it was absolutely important that we press pause and understand what can we do during COVID. So developing projects was incredibly important. So we opened up a unique screen stream, uh, development stream for racialized creators. We earmarked originally half a million dollars for for that stream. And we ended up just, you know, green lighting for development every project that went through, which was over $2 million. We just felt it was absolutely necessary that we support this. Um, and, you know, the funding at the end of the day, and it was, speaks to what you were saying about working with the community, it's just one element of our commitment. You know, it, it, putting dollars behind something is simply not enough. What we've been doing is we've amplified um, our our work as well with dedicated personnel. So we have an Indigenous lead, we have Indigenous, um, also diversity leads, and then we work, we've established working groups. So we've had for quite a while now a gender parity working group. Um, We have an Indigenous working group and we also have a diversity and inclusion working group. And from that, there are certain subcommittees. So we looked at data collection, absolutely essential that we, we, you know, look at 
expanding in that data collection piece. So we've been doing, you know, what I would call a really heavy lift during this pandemic time. Um, and it's offered us the opportunity to really look at how best to try and break down these barriers to access. And to be frank, you know, although I'm proud of what we've accomplished, there's still so much that, that has to, to happen. You know, the data collection has been accelerated, but, you know, coming soon now from telephone will be our diverse language production framework. And this is something that I think, you know, producers have been wanting for a long time. And we really saw the, the, the need to create a diverse language subcommittee to assist us in that work so that we're really working hand in hand with the, the creators tackling this. So we've been doing it all summer long, but we're, we're almost ready um, to share that. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussions by tuning into the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening. Listener.